calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome. You've got digital folklore. That is me. My name is Perry Carpenter. I'm a cybersecurity professional, a published author, and right now I'm in a heavily modified 1965 Chevrolet G10 van plummeting off the side of a mountain road with an audio engineer riding shotgun and a talking raccoon in the jump seat on Christmas Day. You're probably wondering how I ended up in this situation. It's a bit of a long story. It's late 2021. I teamed up with Mason Amadeus, a former audio engineer turned podcaster with a knack for sound design. And we started this show, Digital Folklore. We didn't know quite what we were getting ourselves into. We bought this van, the Volkswagen, all kitted out for recording on the go. And we did our best making our way through the first season. At the time, we would often remark about how broad the scope of folklore is and how it encompasses much more than we had expected. Little did we know that we had only seen the tip of the iceberg. I should have known something was off when this hook-handed man showed up on the roof of our van when I ran him over, when nobody seemed to care. When a VCR we purchased started spewing black flames, after visiting a pawn shop and suddenly returning home with no memory of what happened. So many moments that I could have stopped to question, but I didn't. Not even when Mason's pet raccoon Digby came back from the vet with implants that let him talk. It's a bit like that saying about a frog in boiling water. If you heat it up slowly enough, it won't jump out. Anything can be made to feel normal if it happens gradually enough. That frog thing, that's an urban legend, by the way. Not true. But what is true 
is that it is very easy to ignore the small signs that something in your life isn't quite right until it's too late. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The story that I want to tell you starts between season one and season two of Digital Folklore. We had just finished moving into a new studio complex, something much more suitable than the ramshackle warehouse we had been working out of. It had taken far more time than we had planned, and we were just scrambling to get season two ready to publish. I don't, I don't know why the, I don't know why the audio isn't working. Is it a driver issue? No, I already checked. Latest drivers, latest Windows update. It's got to be. Speakers aren't plugged in. Yeah, well, that'll do it. There's your problem. Yeah, I, I, I mixed it all on headphones. I guess I never tried to play it out loud. Um, anyway, this is, uh, this is the new theme mix. I'm Mason Amadeus. And this is Digital Folklore. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, I like it. So, um, what about the first episode? How far have you gotten? Uh, it's going to be great. You've not started. It's, it, it just it feels a lot like the same things we did in the first season. We need something fresh, and I don't know what it is. Well, we can always just let the interviewees kind of guide the episode and go from there. Yeah, but then I'm really scrabbling last minute to get each one put together. I, I want to have a plan of some kind. Why don't you guys just talk to someone who's been doing a podcast for longer? Digby, did you finish tearing out that carpet? No, there's like half of it left. My teeth hurt. I'm taking a break. That's not a bad idea, though. I mean, there is the Folklore Podcast. I think that's uh, Mark Norman. Oh, yeah. We've messaged back and forth a few times. He is really nice. I think he'd talk to us. We could set up a Zoom chat or something, pick his brain. Why don't you just go visit him? Because I'm pretty sure he lives in England. No, be... he lives downtown. What? Yeah, right off Waller Ave. How'd you know that? I just Googled it. How? With my brain. What? I'm sorry, what? I mean, it took me a few searches because it kept trying to pull up Mark Normand, the comedian, but you can find anything on the internet. No, I get that part, Digby. Okay. You can Google things with your brain. Can't you? No. No. Oh. Yeah, I thought it was weird that you two seem to love sitting at desks so much. Wait, wait. This makes sense. Do you have full internet access in your head now? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Oh my god. You're telling me. How do you two even survive if you can't play Flash games when you're like bored or waiting for something? Digby, they got rid of Flash like in 2021. It's riddled with security holes. I don't know, still works for me. I've got a really cool level I've been making in the OG Line Rider for ages now. Oh, is that what you're doing when I walk in a room and you're just kind of staring off into space? I wonder if there's a way I could show you guys. Right, we, we can figure all this out later. Let's just go to Mark's place. How do we get there? Uh, it's at the end of Waller. It's that side road behind the grocery store. It doesn't have a name. Looks like the only thing on it is his house at the end. Cool. Let's roll. You know, it's really funny how cities have all these disparate little places so close together. I don't remember this being here at all. We're like a quarter of a mile from the main drag. Right? I never noticed this, and it's basically in our backyard. No, I, 
I know I've been here before. I've been over this way before, and it wasn't at all like this. Oh, maybe it's construction. That'd be one heck of a job. I don't know. Sometimes it's the places that are most familiar that you notice the least, right? Memory's weird, man. What the? Mark lives here? That's what the GPS says. No, no, there is no way. I'd, I think I would have noticed a straight-up wizard tower behind the Kroger. That's what I was saying. Memory can't be trusted. I guess? Hey, that's gotta be him. Is, is he dressed like a wizard? Yeah, it kinda looks like it. I think I'm gonna like this guy. Hello, hello. Great to see you both. Hey, is, is this an okay spot to park? Uh, yeah, you should be fine. Cool. Not that there are many options given, you know, the sheer drop into the moat. Hey, uh, Mark, right? Yes, uh, Mark Norman. Yeah, great to meet you. Yeah, Perry, great to meet you too. Mason. Brilliant. Oh, by the way, I, I love the whole mystery machine aesthetic you've got going on there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we uh, kind of leaned into it. And believe it or not, I, I'm actually working on a book right now about the folklore of Scooby-Doo. When I saw you rolling up in that, I figured you were either here to serve me a cease and desist or um, one of my friends is playing a trick. Folklore of Scooby-Doo, eh? It's quite fascinating, actually. Uh, look, let's go inside. We can sit down and have a proper chat. If you don't mind kicking your shoes off. Wow, this place is cool. Is this your house? <laughs> no, uh, it's just an apartment complex. A weird one, though, for sure. This is like straight out of a video game. Yeah, this is absolutely where, like, Merlin or something would live. Uh, yeah, well, the, the property managers seem to think so. The way they take care of this place, they must assume we heat our water with magic. I'm top floor. I'm lucky if I can shower after seven in the morning. Come on. So, I didn't want to ask this at first, but I do have to know, are you dressed like a wizard on purpose? Oh, sort of. Robes are comfortable. Yeah, and the hat? Oh, oh, I just think that's funny. Feel free to make yourselves comfortable. Uh, I'll get the kettle on. Are you absolutely sure that you aren't a wizard? You have a lot of knickknacks. Are knickknacks a symptom of wizardry now? Well, I mean, sort of, right? I just have a wide range of things I'm interested in, and um, I like to keep artifacts of them. So, you've been running the Folklore Podcast for somewhere around a decade now, right? Uh, yes. Almost a decade. Eight years now. Eight years. Mm. So we did one season, and I already, I've, I'm feeling like hesitant about covering the same things over and over again, or like trying to make sure that we're keeping it fresh. How do you find enough stuff to talk about for eight years. I mean, I know the subject is broad, but it feels like it's almost too broad, at least to me. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess yours is slightly narrower because you're only dealing with the digital realm. Supposedly, yeah. Supposedly. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. Supposedly, you are predominantly dealing with the digital realm. Where, whereas I, I stupidly called it the folklore podcast, which means I can deal with the entirety of folklore across all time and space. Stuff will come around more than once. It's bound to because, you know, stuff comes and goes in, into people's areas of interest. When you've been running a show for as long as I have, I guess, as well, topics find you just as much as you find topics. You know, so I get a lot of contact from people who want to promote things, people who want to talk about what they're interested in, which is great. Yeah, we, we've kind of had the same thought every now and then that everything, even when it's quote unquote offline folklore right now, there's an online application to almost everything. I mean, regardless of anything, if we talk to somebody, we've recorded it online. So at that point, it's digital. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a loophole. There's a loophole for everything. I mean, the whole thing is really blended these days in the same way as everything else is post-COVID, I suppose. 
How would you describe for the for the people who hadn't heard it the folklore podcast? It, I mean, it, it does what it says on the tin, but <laughs> it really does. And uh, its original kind of strapline was something along the lines of recalling our forgotten history and recording the new. So it, it looks at old customs, old traditions, old stories, superstitions, all of those things that when you say to a lot of people folklore, they go, "Oh yeah, that's that old stuff, right?" Right. It is that, but it's far more wide-ranging than that. And, you know, there's plenty of modern folklore. Everybody has an interest in folklore, whether they realise it or not, because folklore resonates with everybody day to day because they interact with it day to day. They just don't realise that they're doing it. You know, if you walk around a ladder rather than walking underneath it, if you avoid a crack in the pavement, if you salute a magpie, if you chuck a bit of salt over your shoulder, if you spill it, you know, you're, you're interacting with folklore. And the same applies even in the home, you know. Yeah, we even had somebody on our Discord server ask last night, can family recipes be folklore? And somebody else chimed in immediately and said, absolutely. So yeah. um, I'm wondering, since you've been doing this over eight years, if you were to go back and talk to baby Mark Norman, who started this eight years ago, <laughs> and then look at yourself now, has your perspective on folklore changed or evolved at all? I don't think my perspective on folklore has necessarily evolved. What has probably evolved more is my view on how people engage with the subject. This was supposed to be a hobby at a time when podcasting wasn't the big deal that it is now. Eight years later, it's like, how did this happen? You know, Right. Did you have a background in folklore when you started? No, my background was actually in television originally. I trained to work in television. So my background was more media-based, which is kind of handy for, for the content creation aspect. And th at the time that I studied to work in television, there were no degree-level courses in that subject. So I took a different type of qualification. And when I stopped working television and thought, you know, I, I should go back and get a degree. I then studied social science with a media element. There was a kind of a crossover between the two because I was interested in social science. But then also I had had a long ranging interest in the paranormal. And there's only a short leap really between the paranormal and folklore, particularly if the bridge is social science, which mine was. And I try and approach the podcast in the same way that I try and approach my writing. And, and that was an important link actually between the two. Because at the same time that I started this podcast, I also had my first book published, which was Black Dog Folklore. And my writing style and my style on the podcast are very similar. And that is that I try and bring that academic rigor, if you like, to the subject, but in an accessible format. So I'm not an academic. I don't hold a doctorate. A lot of people in academia would call me an amateur folklorist. Uh, I have a one-person soapbox against that term because until academia decided that folklore was a subject that should be studied as an academic discipline, there were still folklorists and people studying the subject. And I don't think it, it's a hard and fast subject in the same way as some others are. There is certainly that approach to it, and, and I'm not denying that, and I'm not doing that down either. But equally, I don't believe that people who are independent folklorists or independent researchers, which is the term that I prefer, are amateurs. There are certainly fellow folklorists that I could name who, like me, are not affiliated to an academic institution, do not describe themselves as academic, 
that are among the leading folklorists in the world in particular areas. I think I've noticed a, a trend, so you may be starting something or having an impact because several of the conferences and other things that I've seen recently have had titles for people that have said independent folklorists. And then also, there are a few notable folklorists out there who are working in departments that don't necessarily have a recognized folklore degree, but they do blend social science and media studies or English or another discipline and then just put a folkloric emphasis on it. Yeah. And in fact, some countries do it far better than others. You know, America has some very good folklore departments within institutions. Over here, Ireland and Scotland do folklore pretty well. England, we're rubbish at folklore now from an academic <laughs> viewpoint, I think. The, the, there is one master's degree available, the one that Owen Davis and, and Kerry Holbrook run at the University of Hertfordshire, which is good. But outside of that, all the other institutions in England, certainly, that had folklore as a subject, ditched it years ago. And now if people want to do a PhD in a folklore-related subject, they, they often will get bounced from pillar to post between departments trying to find a supervisor because everybody says, no, it's not me, it's English. And English will say, well, I'll talk to anthropology. And I've, I've seen prospective PhD students tearing their hair out over trying to get a supervisor because of that. So a lot of places do it far better than we do, unfortunately. <laughs> I think everybody goes... Yeah, there's all this interest in folk. There's all this interest in folk horror and, and these kinds of associated topics. That's great. And then nobody actually takes that a step further and goes, do you know what? We should do more with this. <laughs> they just kind of go, yeah, everyone's really interested. Cool. What should we do now? Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> and there needs to be more, I think. What, what you guys are doing as well with your podcast is great because... It's showing people that there is this other side to it as well, this whole kind of modern folklore digital aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, kudos to your first season because I think it's really opened a lot of eyes and, and you definitely need to keep doing what you're doing for sure. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. 
allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. There are several other small, dedicated folklore podcasts that are thinking about this from a discipline perspective. What advice would you give to us and everyone else out there really trying to bring the more the academic lens or more the discipline lens to the world? I think you've got to recognize that the majority of your audience are going to be interested in that academic lens that you're shining on it without necessarily being academic themselves. You've got to be very careful not to dumb down the subject because that doesn't mean that people are not intelligent. An academic approach is very different. You know, if if you pick up an academic textbook on a subject and then you pick up a general interest book on the same subject, the writing style will be very different, for example. And and that's the key thing, I think, is is to try and do what I've tried to do, which is to put that academic rigor in, make sure that what you're talking about, you know the subject, uh, the people that you're talking to know the subject, but make it accessible, make it interesting for people, keep people's interest, which is I know you had a mixed response when you started your podcast <laughs> to the narrative style. Yes. But I think it engaged more people than it drove away. Yeah. I, I think right around episode six or seven, people came to it knowing what to expect rather than being shocked. And so I th- I th- that problem largely addressed itself. Sometimes you've got to take that gamble. A new project will always take some time to bed in. You'll always lose some people. You might lose them for a particular episode. You might lose them for the entire show. It happens. But at the end of the day, you will, if you're doing it right, gain more than you'll lose over time. Exactly. There's there's an unhealthy obsession within podcasting around numbers as well. And and this is particularly true, I think, (laughs) amongst, ironically, smaller shows. There's this obsession with how many downloads an episode gets. It doesn't matter. If people are enjoying what you are doing, then that's what's important. Yeah. Yeah, I, de- I definitely don't look at the numbers and think about them at all, ever. <laughs> no, we, ne- we never do that. You should really go about it the same way as I go about reviews for my books, and that's just to not care. Actually, since you mentioned books, you did say that you're working on a book about the folklore of Scooby-Doo. And I've been puzzling on that this whole time, uh, knowing nothing but those words in that order. (laughs) And I'm curious, like, what is the angle that you're going to take in that book? Because thinking about it off the top of my head, like, Scooby-Doo obviously covers a lot of monsters and spooky things that definitely dovetail into folklore. Is that sort of the angle? or or So I'm not going to give too much away because, uh, you know, I am writing this book at the moment, which I didn't title. Actually, my publisher titled, and it's called Zoinks the real-world folklore of Scooby-Doo. The book looks at folklore and Scooby-Doo in both directions, actually. Scooby-Doo has been dealing with folklore as a subject area for well over 50 years. In a lot of later iterations of the show, the monsters are 
perhaps based on real world folklore, but, but are creations of the show's writers because they thought that was a silly idea and it would be fun. The original iteration and some other iterations of the show, they deal very precisely with particular things, witches, ghosts, certain cryptids, these sorts of things, real world mythology. Really, the, the, the Scooby-Doo aspect is, is a springboard to look at the folklore. So the book looks at all the different ways that monsters, for want of a better term, appear in the show. And then it looks at which of these things are drawing from real world folklore and what are they drawing from? What is the origin of the witch's broomstick? What is the origin of the green-skinned hag or whatever? Where is it right and where is it wrong? It also looks at where the show does things well and where it does things badly. So, for example, sticking with witches, there, there are various episodes in different iterations of the show that look at persecution. They look at the way that women are treated and, and all of those things that underlie witchcraft accusations and, and the witch hunts and whether it's Salem in the US or whether it's Matthew Hopkins in the UK and those sorts of things. But then it also looks at the way that Scooby-Doo has influenced folklore in the real world in the other direction, because that's happened a lot. You know, there are particular phrases which are stereotypically Scooby-Doo phrases. Zoinks is one of them. Jinkies is another one. You know, all these sorts of things. There are a lot of urban myths surrounding Scooby-Doo. It's obviously the drug references of, of Shaggy in particular. How much of that is accurate. How much of the other urban myths about the show might or might not be true? Did Scooby-Doo's name actually come from the Frank Sinatra song, which everybody believes that it did? Wait, what? I don't know that one. What? So, so it's said that Scooby is named after the scat style of singing, which Frank Sinatra employed in some of his songs. And Fred Silverman, who, who was one of the executives who worked on the show early on, was listening to Sinatra on a plane flight. But I question whether that is actually the case or whether there might be one or two earlier references that people don't necessarily know about. There are other ways that the show has influenced the real world, like Scooby's speech impediment, for example. Scooby's speech impediment is unique to him as a character. There is no real world speech impediment which works in the way that his does. But a real-world speech therapist has named his speech impediment in the real world based on other forms of speech therapy and, and other types of speech impediment which have similarities huh. around the use of the sound R within words, which is called roticism. So, yeah, far more than you think when you think about what a book about Scooby-Doo might actually be about. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really interesting, too, because that, in a way, in itself, is a time capsule of, like, the opinions of the times, I guess of the writers technically, but like largely influenced by cultural understandings of all of these things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's been really important to me that that is accounted for. So I have as far as possible tried to interview people who've worked on the show over the years to get their opinion. Why was this particular version written in the way that it was? Why did somebody think that Scrappy-Doo was a good idea? You know, these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> people wonder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I interviewed John Semper Jr., who was a, a writer in the Scooby and Scrappy era. He was responsible for the creation of the animated Spider-Man and loads of other cutters. He's a big deal in the cartoon world. And I spoke to him about that subject. And he said, you know what? He said, Scrappy's my favorite character. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Interesting choice. He had his reasons why, and, and, and they were perfectly valid reasons. Um, 
I couldn't agree with them because I don't like Scrappy as a character. But there you go. What's the What's the status of this book? When's it coming out? Do you know? Uh, I don't know because my publisher for this book very stupidly didn't put a deadline on the manuscript. Um, <laughs> so as as it is at the moment, I have written approaching 40,000 words. So it's just over the halfway point. But I have been working on a lot of other projects alongside it, a lot of which are now done. And my main focus in my writing at the moment will be finishing this book now. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for when it comes out. We should probably get moving. We don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, though. Oh, likewise. And I'm very interested in what you two come up with next. So if you ever need any help, don't hesitate to um, reach out, I think you Americans say. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Definitely. I'm sure we're going to come up against a few things that we need your insight on. Oh, it just occurred to me. My friend Daisy lives three doors below. Uh, they run a show called Folkwise, and, and they're doing some very cool stuff to bring folklore studies to a younger crowd online. They're usually wrapping up right around now, so if you have time, you should pop by and meet them. I bet they'd be interested in what you're doing, too. Oh, cool. Yeah, why not? That'd be fun. Uh, thanks, Mark. Ah, of course. Yeah, take care now. Well, that went great. It did. Mark is awesome. Yeah, and I think it's great to meet other folks working in the same field as us. It's also going to be really helpful to have somebody like him to bounce things off of. Which one did he say was Daisy's? Three down. So, um, yeah, that one. I guess the numbers just don't go in order. Yeah, um, guess so. So this is the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. It sounds pretty intense in there. Mark said they should be free to chat about now. Let's let's just knock. I mean, worst case, we come back later. All right. Yes. Uh, hello. Hello. Um, we were told to come see you. Hello. I'm Daisy. Daisy Aldstone. You are... Hey, Daisy, I'm Perry Carpenter, and this is Mason Amadeus. Heya. Oh, nice to meet both of you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Uh, Mark said that we should come talk to you about doing research and stuff, but if if this isn't a good time... No worries. Now it's fine. Now it's fine. Come on in. Oh, there is... Huh? It's it's like spotless in here. What what was all that noise like a second ago? That was just sound effects. Oh? Yeah, I just, I just had the game audio up kind of loud. I was like wrapped up in a live stream. And actually, this is this is perfect timing. This is perfect timing. What's up? You're a live streamer. Yeah. Well, I stream every single Tuesday night and sometimes on Thursday nights on Twitch at twitch.tv slash folkwise. Have you ever heard of folkwise? I have. I actually, I'm in the Discord. No way. Oh, great. Thank, well, welcome to the community. Um, for those of you who haven't heard of Folkwise before, Folkwise is a live Twitch stream that I run um, with my co-host, Dr. Dom Tartaglia, who's the current Florida State folklorist. We talk about folklore, we play video games, but sometimes we play folklore and talk video games. That's really fun too. We invite experts who are folklorists, they're storytellers, they're musicians, they're artists, they're an eclectic group of humanities thinking people who like to study tradition and culture and creativity and everyday life. We play games like The Wolf Among Us, which is a great fairy tale urban legend crossover game where urban legends end up in fairy tale world. And we invited on Sarah Cleto and Brittany Warman from the Carter Haas School to talk to us about folklore and fairy tales. We use video games as kind of a launching pad for conversations 
that are just emergent about the lore that our different guests are experts in. That's really cool because especially with a platform that is designed with interactivity in mind, like Twitch, Mm -hmm. uh, it feels like such a fitting place for discussions around folklore, especially crossing communities like this. So we in our community get to make folklore in real time. Our like number one most used emote on our channel is ladders because of some very, very early lore of folkwise. In Zelda, Breath of the Wild, you can climb anything. We did like a super, super long 11-hour stream of it, and somehow this observation came out as everything is ladders, (laughs) which (laughs) ended up sort of meaning like you can climb anything, like we we could conquer this together. And so it kind of became our calling card. So in our chat, now when subscribers get access to our emotes, they actually make like ladder towers in the chat, if that makes sense. So like that stuff is totally emergent. We're both talking about folklore. We're learning about folklore in a very specific context, depending on what the guest's interests are. But then we're also making folklore together as the folk-wise like community. Maybe this is the metafolkloristics thing that we get into where it's like, we're really doing folklore of folklorists. Well, actually, is that what metafolkloristics is? Because I, <laughs> I saw that word and like I can right. I, I can pull it apart <laughs> into all of its component pieces, but I mm-hmm. can't quite understand it holistically. What is metafolkloristics? Well, so that was interesting because um, I was put on a panel with other folklorists at the American Folklore Society Conference, something metafolkloristics kind of broadly. It was really about like, um, what does it mean to be a folklorist? And what does it mean to do the work of a folklorist? Mm. So rather than focusing on a quote unquote group of people, the folk or a piece of lore or whatever, and all of those contexts in between. And so the metafolkloristics panel was all about us looking inward at the practices of what it means to do work as a folklorist, and then how does that work actually get enacted into our field? Would it be accurate or missing a big aspect of it to summarize metafolkloristics as the study of the study of folklore? Mm. Yes. Is that? I think so. Yeah? I think that that's a fair that's a fair way to put it. It's the reflective part that improves the way that we teach other folklorists how to do folklore and also helps us keep in check with ourselves, especially because so many folklorists are like the folklorist at their giant institution because there's not that many of us. I would love to see more um, community engaged research practices, which is like a whole other subfield incorporated along with folklore studies more. I mean, it, it sounds like one of these things where you're like, would you consider folklore a discipline and almost everybody would say, yeah, there's there's mm-hmm. a discipline to folklore. So, well, how do you apply the discipline? Where's the discipline in the discipline? Right. Actually, Lynn McNeil had a great comparison to this. She always says, um, you're at a party and somebody's like, oh, what do you do for a living? And you're like, I'm a folklorist. And they're like, that's really cool. I bet you're a really good storyteller. She's like, so if a criminologist were here, would you ask them if they were good at committing crime? (laughs) It's a little bit similar to that. And that's not to say that there aren't folklorists who are great storytellers, but it doesn't always necessitate the other thing. A lot of times people say that to do folklore as a researcher is to do ethnography, which is the practice of writing and studying people, like how families interact, which is something that Dr. Chrissy Widmayer does, for example. So like there's lots of different scales that you can do this work on. But I think like at the heart of it, we're trying to make sure that the people that we work with as subjects are fully seen as they want to be represented. Now, 
what does that mean? Am I the person who is part of that group initially? Am I an outsider or am I an insider, right? Mm. Like what's the step-by-step process of ethnography? Is it you, the researcher saying, I think this is really cool. I'm going to highlight that. We've had a long history of people doing that and doing that bad, you know? So I'm interested in saying, okay, we have ethnography and that's not a bad thing, but we got to get really critical about what it means to do work with communities, not next to communities or of communities or for communities. Because if we're going to disrupt systems of research methods that have perpetuated inequality intentionally or unintentionally, doing work with the community and actually talking about how that happens, I think is a really important step for getting to improve practices that actually serve the people that we want to serve. Yeah. I found your bio and one of the sentences in it was talk to me about participatory action research. And I'm wondering if if yeah. that's what this is or because I looked it up briefly and it was research done by people who would be affected by the subject of that research. Yes. I came away from reading a little bit about it thinking I have a vague idea, but not a very good idea. So what is participatory action research? So this is like another one of those examples and is similar to what I said earlier, like ethnography. Think of all these little things as like toolkits. You can get a toolkit and this toolkit is participatory action research. So I always like to think like, okay, what question am I asking and what do I want to know? And usually folklorists say, I don't know, the people are going to tell me. You know, you don't have an idea going in what the answer is, but that's not how a lot of other disciplines work. A lot of other disciplines have an idea of what they think the answer is going to be. It's like you're thinking backwards about what you actually want to know. Because you have an assumption. Yes, because you have an assumption. So you might say like, my assumption is this, and then the research proves it or it doesn't. Both are important. But participatory action research was developed in a context that noticed a lot of people, particularly in mass health or social sciences studies, were being used for research that were not part of the design process of the research. So that would be like, you receive an email that says, take my survey, your XYZ category of person will send you 50 bucks. Okay, that might work on a mass scale. You can generalize from that data. There is space for that in the world. But what that research doesn't do is let you, the person who got the email, have a lot of input on how they're interpreting that data. So what participatory action research does is says, hey, I want to do a study on our city and you are a person who lives in our city. Come talk to us about how we might answer a question about access to clean water in our city. Have them actually be part of the design process. And I'm very much simplifying it. And there's all these complicated questions about like how people see you as the researcher and the expert and trying to undo some of those assumptions. And then what that might mean for people to be able to suggest certain designs or not for research. But the important part about participatory action research is that the people who are actually contributing data are engaged in the way the data was formed collected, interpreted, and then stored. So that, I think, is a great method for folklorists to use. Trying to minimize outsider bias, right? Well, either minimize or or just note it. Right. You know, it's not bad to say, like, this person doesn't know that. For example, Dr. Jasper Waugh Quaysparth from West Virginia, he did a whole violin-making, instrument-making project with people who actually make instruments as an apprentice. He was put in that very nice inverse role of being the not expert because he didn't know how to make an instrument. So for that scenario, that's a method that actually worked really well. 
where if you're trying to take folklore like as a practice and scale it, so rather than just a family or an individual, if you want to say like my community, first of all, like, you know, who's in that community? That's my favorite question. Right. If you're going to try to scale up that data, how do you include enough people through a participatory model? So this makes total sense to me in the, in the context of um, conducting research. I have a weird question and I'm going to try really hard to articulate it properly, but I'm going to have to just work down this, this pathway. I'm wondering how people in a position like the three of us on this call can use this framework and way of thinking in the work that we are doing. How does that look? Because we are a level abstracted from the research because we are people talking to folklorists about things. Well, you're already doing a couple of good things. One, you're kind of doing meta folklore. You're interviewing people about folklore, but you're also part of this community. So you're doing kind of an interview style. You're not doing ethnographic interview also, which I think is interesting. And we don't do, we say that on our show too, mm -hmm. on Folkwise. We don't do ethnographic interviews because sometimes folklorists are like, is this ethnography? And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we are doing a kind of journalistic interview. <laughs> like we're trying to make you look really good and funny is what we're trying to do. Oh yeah. We think about how to engage with folklorists and present folklore-related ideas to non-folklorists. We're always trying to figure out how do we do this in a reflective and responsible way. You also have to think about who gets to call themselves a folklorist. Who, who is aware of that word and that there is a discipline connected to it? Dom and I, we quote our friend James Bell, who is always in our chat on Folkwise, and he describes folklorists as enthusiasm enthusiasts. Ha. That is awesome. I love that. That's so Isn't great. That fun? I don't think I'll ever pin the badge of folklorist to my name, but I will always pin the badge of enthusiasm enthusiast. Yes. yes. I do think that people who are interested in the field of folklore, who are interested in the stuff that people do just on a daily basis that brings them joy, baking with grandma, taking kids to the zoos to talk about dinosaurs. Why do kids like dinosaurs? What's that about? Like all of that, I'm enthusiastic for the kid who's really into trucks and I want to know cognitively, like who told you about trucks? Right. The enthusiasm enthusiast is a great way of beginning that, that inquiry into human behavior. Completely agree. There's a lot of people who are interested in folklore who don't call themselves folklorists. That means that our scope of guests is skewed academia which can be alienating to a lot of people. And then what does academia mean? It prioritizes usually white people, usually people who have more money. Right. I do think more and more queer people are into folklore as a discipline or as like a school of thought because it is an open way of thinking and allows for a multiplicity of thought at once. <laughs> and a lot of people who don't ascribe to binary identities like myself or like many of my friends, I think folklore is a way of talking about the community that we have always recorded and documented in the basements of houses and on the streets and like in these places that were marginalized. Like Zora Neale Hurston, amazing example from the early you know 20th century as a folklorist documenting marginalized communities that she was part of. There's an opportunity for like many things to be true at once in folklore and have it be okay. Like just tying back to like urban legends, contemporary legends, the idea for folklorists that something is or is not real is less interesting than why people are believing it in the first place. That's a really interesting way to put that. It is. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Traditionally, the 
folklorist stance when studying things has been to be very non-interventionalist. Um, in today's political social climate, there are things that we might study as folklorists like QAnon that it's hard to stay detached from. Is folklore wrestling is a discipline in this non-interventionalist stance right now? And what, what do you think folklore looks like a decade from now because of that? So a lot of folklorists are activists. They come to folklore because they care about the communities that they're involved in, that they're advocating for, whatever. And then that, I think, has been beat out of them a little bit because of academia. Activists are unwieldy or they're too passionate and it blights their view of the subject, which I think is not a great interpretation of that. There's been a long-standing tradition of activism and folklore, and activists tend to be interventionists. Not always. Sometimes they're documenting the intervention that their colleagues are making. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. I think if, if you are silent in instances of oppression and you have the expertise to know what's going on and you don't say something, you're part of the problem. I think that all of those are opportunities to have conversations. I think being invitational to different ways of thinking is the framework to choose. <laughs> I think most of the time being invitational or being curious about somebody's belief is what makes us interested in the first place. We want to know like why somebody would say something like that, you know, but I also think there are times to just say like, come on, you know better. What are, what are we playing here? <laughs> I don't think it's a problem to be interventionist. I think that you're a person who wears a lot of different hats. And so to like intervene and say, do that or do this, I think is sometimes not appropriate, but an invitation to the conversation I always think is appropriate. I love, I love the invitation to the conversation way of thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that I think that's a great answer. Thank you so much, Daisy. This has been so awesome. Yeah, yeah we've loved having of course. you. This is great. Come on, Folkwise. We'll do it. We can do a double interview. We've done Ooh, that. Oh, we should. Yes. We had two people on. Wouldn't that be fun? That'll be wicked fun. Okay, I would be super be really down. We did that. Mm -hmm. The we did that with the Carter Haws. Yeah. The Carter Haw twins. Well, today was an adventure. Yeah. So I'm actually really excited about this. I mean, those two folks got my gears turning, like on new ideas, things that we can explore for the show. Yeah, yeah, same, same. What's got you sucked into phone land over there? Oh, I, I found this thing. It's like, it's, um, when we were talking with Daisy about uh, participatory action research, it, it really mm -hmm. stuck in my brain, like the idea of participating in something. So I just found this convention that's happening in like a few months. It looks like it might be neat. Okay, what's it about? Uh, it's like a meme conference. Yeah? Yeah, it's the, uh, the Meme Enthusiast Mega Expo. That actually does sound like it could be interesting. Yeah, M-E-M-E. -M -E. It, like, it looks like something we get a lot out of, but some of it seems a little cringy though mm -hmm. like the tagline for it is don't let your memes be dreams and there's like a hundred pepe frogs all over the place no that would be perfect i mean even if it was entirely cringe stuff i think that that would be worth it why the folklore of cringe <laughs> actually could be an episode it could no i mean we wanted to do some episodes about memes but that topic is so broad we never knew where to start this might give us an in that's a good point this could be a good way to get into it just whatever we'd run into we'd make it into an episode yeah how much are tickets yeah, that's why I wasn't bringing it up right away. Um, they're big expensive. So the way to get around that is we sign up as speakers. What? That's the way you get around all these big conference expenses is you sign up as speakers. They waive the fee for you and kind of treat you like royalty. Yeah, but we would have to do a, we would have to do a presentation then. What would we talk that's about? That's all just details. We can figure that out later. Let's just get the application in now. That way we have the timing advantage. 
Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll get that filled out and just sort of, I don't know, be vague enough and hope that that makes them intrigued and want to pick us. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. And thanks to our guests this episode. My name's Mark Norman. I'm the creator and host of the Folklore Podcast, which you can find online at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. I'm Daisy Allstone, and I'm one of the creators of Folkwise. And you can follow us on twitch.tv slash folkwise. We're on Instagram at folk underscore wise. Our new theme music was by Eli Chambers. You can find him at elichambersmusic.com. Check out the show notes of this episode. Links to all of our guests and voice actors' work, as well as a transcript for this episode. You'll also find links to our website, an invite to our Discord server, where you can talk to me and Perry, as well as other fans of the show, a link to our Patreon, where you can help support us, and a whole bunch more. Digital Folklore is a production of Eighth Layer Media, which is really just Mason and me. And Digby. Still not paying Digby. If you have a moment, now is a great time to leave a review for our show on Apple Podcasts podcasts, or tell a friend about digital folklore. If you want to help us be successful, spread the word. It's that easy. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. 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 I just wish this dumb implant came with an ad blocker. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.